everyone as, as you walked out, and, and just something to, I guess, reflect on in the week ahead. And this is really the point of my entire message this morning, what, the, this question of where is God in your photo? And my heart this morning is that you reflect on this idea this morning. Don't put this down as just another sermon, another message, another tick the box of being to church this morning. I really encourage you to reflect on this question for yourself this morning. And as we go through this week, where is God in your photo? Where is God in your photo? John 3.16 is a beautiful verse. And I'm going to help us rethink it and repackage it this morning. John 3.16 is such a powerful verse because John 3.16 puts God right back at the center of the photo. John 3.16 puts God right back at the center of the photo. The scripture goes, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Such a great verse. And you know, unfortunately, over the years, I think John 3.16 has been preached like it's a maths formula. John 3.16 has been preached like it's a cooking recipe. It's sometimes been preached as if John 3.16 is steps to peace with God. It's a way of us kind of reaching out to God. But I want to say this morning that actually John 3.16 is about putting God back at the center of the photo because John 3.16 is about who God is and what he has done in human history. John 3.16 is about who God is. John 3.16 is about the character of God. It's about the nature of God. It is about who God is. See, John 3.16 is not, here's the formula, here's the recipe you need to follow in order to have peace with God. John 3.16 is God reaching down so that all humanity might know him. See, John 3.16 is about the steps God has taken to reach out to humanity. It's sometimes been reformulated and preached as if, if I follow this set formula, then I can find peace with God. But John 3.16 is so much more majestic than that. So if you think you've heard it all before, and you've heard John 3.16 before, and you've seen it swung over the, the side of a, a stadium or Eden Park, you know, John 3.16 back in the, the, the glory days, I want to say this morning that you haven't heard it all before because John 3.16 is so much more powerful than you think. So much more richer than you think. In fact, we could spend the entire year, this year, and all the next year on John 3.16, and we still wouldn't have been done. There is so much to be said about John 3.16, and I've only got a few minutes this morning just to cover off a few key points. So this morning, I want to talk about who God is, his nature, and his character, and what he has done in human history, so that all humanity might know him. My first point this morning is this. Number one, God acts. You see, um, <clears throat> John 3.16 starts with two words. The lawyer in me looks to try and unpack words. We look to words, we look to definitions. And the first two words of John 3.16 is for God. See, John 3.16 starts with for God. The word for is a causal word. For God, God has taken action in human history. That is such an important point. You see, back in the 17th century, there was a famous philosophy known as deism. And the deists believed in the 17th century that God exists. In the 17th century, no one had an issue with this idea that God exists and that God had created the universe, that God had created life. But they took issue with the second point, which is they did not believe that God had acted in human history. In fact, Benjamin Franklin was one of the most famous deists of the time. What an interesting idea, this idea that you could believe that God exists, but that you don't believe that he has acted in human history. 
You see, deities had no problem believing that God had created the photo. They believed God had created life. He had created the world around us. They just didn't believe that he had actually acted in human history. But John 3.16 starts with the opening words, for God. God has acted in human history. For God. They actually believed in a famous theory called the clockwork universe. And you may have you know, heard of this, this idea before. This is, uh, the, the clockwork universe theory is this idea that basically God created the universe like he wound it up like a clock. He put in place natural laws and physical laws, and then God stepped away from the universe and just let the universe carry on. John 3.16 says the very opposite. John 3.16 says, for God. God has acted in human history. You see, there is a difference between believing that God exists and believing that God has acted in human history. Do you believe that God acts in your photo? I mean, it's one thing to say, yes, I believe in God, but do you believe that God is active in your photo day after day, week after week? Is God active in your photo? Does God act? At the end of the day, I say to my, my kids, Connor and Charlotte Thomas, right, everyone, we're going to put down the devices now, and uh, we're going to gather, and we have, and I'm a preacher, teacher type, as you can tell, I've got a lot of words and a lot of things to say. My family have given up coming to hear me preach now, because I get so much of it at home. But um, there is, um, there's a beautiful thing we do at the end of the day, which I stole from a famous saint called Saint Ignatius. He was a famous Catholic uh, minister who, who, who lived many years ago, and he believed um, in asking this question. At the end of each day, before he went to bed, St. Ignatius would sit there, and he'd ask this question, where was God for me today? Where was God for me today? Where was God active in my photo today? And I suggest, and, and so we go around with the family and say, where was God for you today? Where was God active for you today? God is active in your photo every day. It's just a question of discerning or, or, or stopping long enough to actually ask that question. I encourage you at the end of the day to ask that question, where was God for me today? Where did I sense God was present in my photo today? God is active. There's a very famous article called Rummaging for God. Rummaging for God is looking back over my day and saying, God, where were you active in my photo today? And tomorrow, God, I pray that I'd be much more attentive to your activity in my photo. God acts. The second point is that God loves. God loves. God so loved. You see, the deists, the problem with deism is this. They believe that the the universe is just wound up like a clock, that there's God's put in place all these physical laws and natural laws, but God does not care in this old, sad world. But actually, the gospel says God so loved. See, the deist says God's not interested. Yes, he created the universe, but he's not interested in humanity. But the gospel says something completely opposite. For God so loved. Let me break that down for you. So loved. You know, so loved, the Greek for so loved is translated in this way. The word so translated in the Greek means in this way. In other words, a better rendering of John 3.16 would be, for God in this way loved the world. In other words, God did not love the world with feelings. God loved the world in action. For God in this way, for God so loved for God in this way. 
For God in this way loved the world. Secondly, the world. <clears throat> now you have to watch my spelling here. But the Greek for world is actually cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. And what the Greek is trying to emphasize is God's universal love for all humanity. The cosmos. And you've got to understand how confronting John 3.16 would have been. Because remember, most of the early Christians were Jews. How could the God of Israel be at all interested in the Gentiles? But John is saying, for God so loved the world, God loved the entire cosmos. He loves everyone, all human beings. The God of Israel, the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, is the same God that loves the entire world. And that would have been so confronting. We don't actually appreciate that. We forget that most of the early Christians were Jews before the gospel spread throughout the world. The early church was primarily made up of Jews who would have thought, for God so loved the world, the God of Israel was for for everyone, for everybody. The gospel loves everyone. It does not matter your immigration status, ethnicity, culture, greed, Gentile, Jew, young or old. It is for everyone. And here is the challenge, right? As Christians, we are called in our daily lives to demonstrate God's love for the world. And I was thinking about this recently. We are called to demonstrate God's love for the world, even on social media. I was looking at some posts, you know, as we were going through the elections recently, not like the US elections, but even locally, you know, with our New Zealand elections a few weeks ago. And my question in my mind was, will my post reflect God's love for the world? Will my post reflect God's love for the world? See, God so loved the world is more important than my political views. God so loved the world is more important than my views on immigration. God so loved the world is more important than my views on any political leader. God so loved the world is more important than all of that. And so when I'm going to post on Facebook or Instagram or whatever that social media platform might be, am I demonstrating for God so loved the world in my post? For God so loved the world. God is colorblind. He is creed blind, status blind, culture blind, ethnicity blind. He's blind to all of it. So my question this morning, going back to who is in my photo, how is God calling me to love the people in my photo? How is God calling me to reflect his love for the people in my photo? I remember a few, few months ago when I was preaching here last, I'm not sure when that was, but a few months back now, and I was a partner in a law firm, but earlier this year I started a new practice, and the name of my practice is Watermark Employment Law, and I was thinking about, um, what should I name the practice, and I was praying about it, and I was thinking about what should be the name, and I wrote a sermon years ago based on Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. And which says, for God made human beings in his image. And I wrote a sermon called The Watermark, that in every single human being, there is the image of God. If you look really closely through all of the the labels that we attach, if you look, if you just wade through all of it, you can see the image of God in every single human being. There's a little watermark there, the indelible imprint of God's image in every single person. And so I wrote, I decided to name my practice Watermark Employment Law because I wanted all of my team, all of my employment lawyers who work in my office with with, with all of us, that no matter how difficult that client is on the other side, 
or that lawyer, and it's difficult, like lawyers are super difficult, um, judges, mediators, whoever we're dealing with day in, day out, it does not no matter how difficult you are or how argumentative you are, you have the watermark imprinted in your life, God's image is in you. So help us to see through all of that and to see the watermark. You too um, wrote a beautiful song, When I Look at the World, and someone in a, in a church once asked me, Simon, I've never heard of that song, and then they text me later, they said, I found it on one of those old albums. When I look at the world, when you look at the world, what is it that you see? People find all kinds of things that bring them to their knees. I see an expression so clear and so true that it changes the atmosphere when you walk into the room. So I try to be like you, try to feel it like you do, but without you, it's no use. I can't see what you see when I look at the world. I try to feel it like you do, but without you, it's no use. I can't see what you see when I look at the world. And that's really the essence of God so loved, that God would help us to see the world the way he sees it, to see people the way he sees them. Thirdly, God gives. He gave his one and only son. Now, just interestingly, John 3.16, right? If you, you've got to read the two verses before, which are quite odd verses. Verse 14 and verse 15. Verse 14 and verse 15 say this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Why is Jesus talking about an odd story about a snake being lifted up in the wilderness. What is Jesus referring to? And they're, they're the two verses that lead us up to the crescendo of John 3.16. Well, the story is actually in Numbers chapter 21. And this is the story, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Then the people of Israel sent out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea. But they began to become impatient. And they began to speak against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible man manner. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried, we've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses, Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake, attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze pole and they would be healed. So they're in the desert. They complain to Moses and to God that, there is, that life's not great. And so poisonous snakes come out and they bite a number of the people of God, people of Israel, and some of them died. Moses prays, and God says, make a, make a, a staff, make, put, a, put a bronze head on it of a snake. Any person who has been bitten, who looks to the head of that, that bronze snake staff, um, will be healed. So what is Jesus doing? Why is Jesus referring to this odd story in the book of Numbers in John chapter 3? Because Jesus was trying to compare and contrast what he was about to do with what was happening in the book of Numbers. You see, in the book of Numbers, God offered the people of God, he said to the people of God, if you look at the snake, the head, you'll be healed physically of your snake bite. 
But Jesus says, now with the gospel, number one, it's not just for the people of God, it's for all of humanity. See the contrast? Secondly, it's not just physical healing, it's eternal life. You see, in the desert, all they could do is look at the head of the snake and they'd be healed physically. But now the gospel says, not only are you healed, actually what you receive is this beautiful gift of eternal life. And this is not just this, this odd staff and this odd head snake on it. This is actually the life of God's one and only son. It's a beautiful contrast not just physical healing, but eternal life. Not just a bronze snake, but the gift of my one and only son. And anyone who looks to the son will be fully healed. Receive eternal life. The best, best way I can illustrate God's love for all humanity is to read this letter. When we think about God gives, when we, speak, when we think about God gives, there is a letter written by David Hughes, 21 August 1940. I have a book at home, and it's got, it's a collection of famous letters that have been written. And this is, this is a powerful letter. My darlings, it's been a long time since I wrote. I've been shot, I have shot and been shot at. I have killed, but not been killed. I've had my life saved by a comrade and saved another in return. I am now what is termed as an ace and that I have over five juries to my credit, namely six machines have been destroyed through my pressing a little button. I arrived in my new squadron on Sunday, August 4th. <clears throat> by August the 11th, I was the chief officer. We lost 12 pilots in four days, but after I took over, we only lost one in a week. One day, we were the first squadron to make contact with the enemy, and I led my squadron, 12 of us, against 350 bombers escorted by enemy fighters. It was one hell of a scrap. When I landed, I had 150 bullet holes in my machine. On the 18th of August, our squadron was sent down here for a rest, and we needed it. I'd lost a stone in under a fortnight. We'd been flying for six, seven-hour days, missing meals, averaging five hours sleep a day. Up to today, we've had a quiet time, but the Nazis gave us their attention today and bombed us here. I was in the mess when the bombs came and rushed down to the machines, and as I took off, the Jerry's machine gunned me and then dodged into the clouds and got away. I flew over Cardiff last Monday. I'm writing this in my flying kit now. I'm waiting for the word to take off. Take care, darlings. All my love, David. And then less than a month after his letter, on 11 September 1940, Hughes was shot down over the English Channel. His body was never recovered. And if there's anything that really illustrates the gospel, it's the life of a son given for freedom. That is the gospel message. God gives. Finally, God acts, God loves, God gives. This is about who God is. It's about his nature and it's about his character. Finally, God saves. There is a great book called Dangerous Wonder by Mike Iaconoli. And you know the problem sometimes is, as followers of Christ, it is easy to lose the wonder of the gospel. It is easy to hear John 3.16 and think I've heard it all before and it's just another verse. And that we lose the wonder of the gospel. And you know, God starts to fade in my photo when I lose the wonder of the gospel. God fades in my photo when I start to I forget the wonder of the gospel. May we never forget that the, the gift of eternal life, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is the life we need for three reasons. One, it speaks to our past, 
The beautiful, my favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. When I have moments in my life when I wonder about when guilt starts to hold onto my back like a, like a black dog, I say, but the old has gone. The new has come. The gift of eternal life is the life we need because it speaks to our past. Two, it speaks to our present. Eternal life does not start when we go to heaven. Eternal life starts now. One Bible commentator said it like this. Eternal life is more than endless existence. It is sharing in the life of the eternal one. Now. Eternal life starts now. It speaks to our present. It speaks to our past. And, of course, it speaks to our future because the Bible says that one day we'll live in a new heavens and a new earth. And the eternal life that we have now will carry on into that. New heavens and a new earth. Paul writes in one, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, we lose the wonder of the gospel. We think the gospel is like a boring workplace policy that an employment lawyer would write, that no one cares about, that it just props up the computer screen at work and sits there, but no one cares about it. We think the gospel is lifeless, but the gospel is life. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1.16, for the gospel is the power of God. And that word power is translated in Greek as to dynamos, which means Paul is saying the gospel is dynamite, not a boring workplace policy. The gospel is dynamite because it is about eternal life that all humanity needs. The most important prayer in Judaism is the schema, right? And the schema was so important. The schema was how the Jews looked at the world around them. And what they would do is that the scribes would take the schema and they'd write it on a little parchment. And they would hang it in, the, in all of the doorways through all their rooms in their, in their house. And every time they'd walk under it, they'd have it in a little box, a mezuzah, and it'd be a little parchment. And on the parchment would be the words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And people would walk under this, this framework, this mezuzah would sit there, and every time they walked under it, they were reminded of the schema. And I wondered, if you, were going to, if you were going to put a mezuzah, if you were going to hang a little piece of string under your doorway and walk under it as you go out the front door, what's your schema? What's your perspective? What's the way you see the world around us? Because the gospel message, it changes our whole entire perspective, right? Our perspective on relationships, our perspective on work, our perspective on finance, our perspective on absolutely everything. What is your schema? At Wimbledon, at the center court, not that I've gone on to the center court, but I'm not that good at tennis to go onto the main court. But there is a little inscription as you walk out there. Every tennis player has walked out there. And it says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Very famous inscription at Wimbledon Center Court. That's the schema. That's what you walk out under, underneath. As you walk out, you have that schema over you. And I think this morning, if you think about the gospel and John 3.16, what is the schema? It is that God acts, God loves, God gives, and God saves. And how does that transform your perspective? The way you'll see your day tomorrow. If you start, God, say, God, let me reflect on who you are, the nature of who you are, and what you've done in human history. I will finish with 
something from Sesame Street. Because if there's one, uh, there, there was a moment in Sesame Street when, when Oscar the Grouch, who reminds me of my, my wife first thing in the morning, I must say, he's, um, he's talking to a kid and he's talking about how he lives in a garbage dump and everything around him is all, it's all negative. He's got such a, a bit of a negative perspective. And of course, you know, like Sesame Street, it's educational and it's filled with songs and things, but there is a moment when they decide to break out in song. And this, this, this kid tries to teach Oscar the Grouch to change his perspective. Because that's what the, and by the way, that's what the gospel does changes our perspective and they have the song and the song is I see a kingdom listen up because this is all I have to say this could be the thing to get you on your way just imagine what is old and new again maybe then you'll understand I tell you take a look around and tell me that you don't see just a worthless pile of garbage and debris I see a kingdom shining bright I can see the colors coming through you'll find the beauty if you look at something right it's all about your point of view and life is all about your point of view. Everywhere you look, a story can be told. And the tales they tell are worth their weight in gold. In a place that's filled with mountains made of trash, rotting castaways and broken bits of glass, I dare you take a look around and tell me that you don't see just a worthless pile of garbage and debris because I see a kingdom shining bright. And life is all about your point of view. It's all about your point of view. John 3.16 changes our point of view. It puts God back at the center of the photo. So let me finish this morning, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for all of my friends here this morning at church. And Lord, I pray that John 3.16 wouldn't just be a verse that we have read and pop away, but I pray that it would teach us and help us to bring you back to the center of our photo, that it would be the schema, the way we see the world around us. Lord, we are frail and we struggle and we need you, Lord. I pray that you would help all of us, Lord, whatever part of the journey we're on this morning. Father, move us forward in you, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. For God so loved the world. Is that amazing? Do you know if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or maybe your life is far from him today, I want to invite you to pray a special prayer with me. Um, you know, the truth is that God loves you and He made you and He has a great plan for your life. And we all sin and we all mess up, but He died on the cross. He sent His only Son to die on the cross so that all that would be forgiven. Forgiveness for our past, for life right now, and a hope for your future and eternity with Him starting right now. Can I get us all to bow our heads for a moment? You know, if you, that's you this morning. If you say yes, that's me. You're speaking to me. I want you to just say this prayer. You can say it out loud or you can say it in your hearts. God, today, I surrender my life to you. I know I've sinned, but I believe, Jesus, you died for me. I turn from my old life and I turn to you. Come in and be the Lord of my life and make me brand new today. I choose from this day to live for you. Amen. With every head still up bowed and every eye still closed. If that's you, if you just prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. And this isn't to embarrass you, but it's so that I can acknowledge you, so that we can start this journey with you together. I'm going to count to three. And when I say, when I get to three, you just pop your hand up and I'll acknowledge you and you can pop it back down again. We're so proud of you and we want to invite you to take this last step. So on the count of three, one, God loves you. Two, 
He so loves you that He gave His one and only Son. Three, you can pop your hand up now. 